0: How many of you, like me, hate to wait? Then you're going to hate this message. I uh, am often found in a place where I need to use my phone as my internet connection, you know, a Verizon hotspot. And it is so frustrating because it takes ten seconds for it to hook up to my computer. It takes ten full seconds for this phone to transform itself into a fully functional computer connect with some area cell tower, and then a satellite in outer space, and then come back. And that is the longest ten seconds of my life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This is just getting out of control, isn't it? It really is. Well, listen, this morning we're going to be talking about that, and we're going to be continuing in our Through the Bible uh, teaching series with First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. And among other things, this book, these books together, talk about the dangers of not waiting when God says to wait. And we'll use the same structure as we've been using to approach these books uh, up till now. We'll look at context and main stories, storylines, and then a hot spot. Let's begin with the context. First and Second Samuel. Uh, we'll take them together. I told you when we ran into one, twos, and threes, we'll we'll very likely just do them all together so we can get a sense of this as we make this survey approach to the Bible over who knows how long. But uh, we're here now, and these together in context, uh, first of all, we need to realize that a context is the bigger picture in which a passage or a series of passages may be set in the Bible, and it's so important to get our heads around that if we want to have a true interpretation of what the Bible is actually saying. In context of First and Second Samuel, first of all, this took place toward the critical transition between the judges and the kings. So as the people of Israel developed, remember, they began really with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then they wound up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God raised up Moses to bring them out of slavery, transitioned, as we've seen, over to Joshua... And then from Joshua, a transition to a series of individuals who led Israel, and they were called the judges. And now, we're set in the context of this passage, there's a transition um, away from the the judges over to the kings now. The kings now will rule Israel, and eventually Israel and Judah. Um, the second piece of context that I think is important is to notice that this is happening during the arrival of Israel as a stable regional power. If you think about their development as a people, they began as a nomadic people. They were moving about and going where they needed to go to find what they needed to live. And they were following God in that respect. And then, and then we pick them up after Egypt, after slavery in Egypt, not as a nomadic people, but as an invading people. And so they came into the Promised Land, and they invaded the, the, the cities that were there and they conquered them by God's direction and by God's power, yes? And so they were an invading people and then and then they were an occupying people. They were occupying a foreign land. Well what we're seeing now in first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and first and second chronicles is a transition over to being a stable regional power so that they're not invading anymore, but they're they're switching to defense is a way to think about it. Because they've established their cities and they've built their own walls. And now they're switching. To, they were on offense as they were conquering the land. And now they're on defense because, as it turns out, the people that they conquered want their land back. And so this is what's happening in the progression of, of Israel. And they asked for a king. Uh, some of you are familiar with that passage. They asked for a king. And we kind of have been critical of Israel for asking for a king over, you know, various approaches to that passage of scripture. But from my view, I think they asked for a king so that they could function with the same sense of autonomy as the other peoples who were living who had their kings. And so they didn't want to function kind of in a geopolitical way as something other than what everybody else was, but they needed a king. And that's where they were in their progression you know what I'm talking about as socially, sociologically, anthropologically as a people they were at a place where they're shifting the kind of people that that they they were. So these are the points of context I think you have to hold in view when you read first and second Samuel. Otherwise, you may romanticize it. You know like when you're reading in first Samuel 17 about David and Goliath, you know when we have our little songs that one little stone went in this sling and this sling went round and round and it kind of becomes a romantic almost fable like story to us and in reality it's true it's absolutely true and when you hold it in view of the context of first and second samuel it begins to make a lot more sense along the way so these are things that you want to hold hold on to as you read first and second samuel the main storylines of this of these two books together i think you have to start by noting that there's a, there's a move from Eli to King Saul with Samuel in between. So all these judges were ruling, and then Judges ends, and then there's Ruth kind of stuck in between there in the canon of the Bible, which we covered last week. And then when we open 1 Samuel, it opens with this guy called Eli, and he's a priest, and he's a judge, and, and then you raise up Samuel under him, who is a priest, and he's a judge, and he's a prophet, and he's got all this stuff going on. And so there is this move to the first king, whose name was Saul, King Saul. So this is a very important storyline that's progressing. Second, I think you'll want to notice the main storyline in First and Second Samuel is the rise and the life of King David. You really can't say too much about David as an influential figure, first on the people of Israel, second, he still left his mark on the body of Christ, the church today, because he wrote psalms, he was a worshiper, and all all, all of these things that you really can't say enough good things about David. And so it's such a main storyline throughout First and Second Samuel. I do want to point something out, though, about David that I had never thought of until this week in preparing for this message, and that is... You know how when you think of David, you often think of David and? David and, who would you say? David and Goliath. David and Saul. David and Jonathan. David and Bathsheba. David and Absalom. These are the main points. It's always David and. In those five relationships I just mentioned, I want you to notice that four of the five were relationships of extreme conflict and heartache. David had one friend. His friend was Jonathan. David had one friend. And his friend was Jonathan. His other relationships were characterized by such conflict. And I just think, with all due respect, as I said you can't say enough good things about David, you have to hold that intention with the fact that his relationships were filled with conflict. And so, while you may admire him as a psalmist and an off-the-hook worshiper, I don't think you'd want him to be your pastor. He was tough to get along with. He had his heart on God. He was described as a man after God's own heart. And he seemed to let the chips fall where they may with respect to the people around him. Well, these are the main storylines. And... Uh, I think that that kind of gets a general picture of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And the third thing the other thing that we like to do in this series of studies is then to go to a hot spot somewhere in the scripture that we're looking at that is really a place of focus where the Lord may want to say something to us. And there's there's so many options. I mean that just jump off of the pages. There's David and Goliath, How can you pass over that as a hotspot, right? Because there are so many things that you could gain from that, that conquering encounter. But there's also 2 Samuel 6 where David danced before the Lord with all of his might, stripped down to his ephod, and he was getting his God juice on, wasn't he? As he was just worshiping as the ark was being returned. And so there are places that we could go that seem obvious. But I feel like I need you to know something. And that is in the selection of the hot spot each week as I prepare, I I really don't pay that much attention to the parts that just sort of appeal to me, going, well, yeah, there we go. What I do is I spend time in prayer before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want to say to the, the people you know will be gathered together at the Grove City Vineyard on Sunday? And so... Where I felt really drawn to was uh, was First Samuel chapter thirteen, and we'll start in the second half of verse seven and look down through verse fourteen. So First Samuel chapter thirteen, beginning in verse seven, the second half. It's kind of split up, sort of weird. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I will have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Father, as we get to this place, I, I know that I, I just need to rely completely on your spirit to say the things that you have revealed to me. And I pray, Father, that you will carry these words of mine into the right spots in people's minds and hearts and from the right tone in which you really mean them. And so we invite you Lord to come and and to do the teaching here. In Jesus name. Amen. So you're getting the picture King Saul is at a place where in a variety of military campaigns he's having mixed success. Sometimes he's successful and sometimes he's not. And he's noticing that when he has the favor of the Lord, he's successful, and when he doesn't have the favor of the Lord, he fails. And so what's happening in this story is that Samuel, the prophet, who was and priest, who was not a priest by lineage, but by tutelage under Eli, that Samuel had said to him, "I want you to wait there for seven days, and then I'll come and I will offer the offerings." that are offerings to the Lord that will ensure your victory. So that was the clear word of the Lord. Well, Saul, after seven days, and maybe in the seventh day it would appear, became impatient. And he thought to himself, my men are scattering. I have to do something. I know I'll fail without the favor of the Lord. So rather than wait for the priest Samuel to come, I will make the offering myself. I'll just do it. After all, how hard can this really be? And so he does that, and you know the rest of the story. I just read it for you that Samuel shows up and says, What have you done? He said, Well, I got tired of waiting, and so I just did it. And he said, You've acted foolishly. You've done a terrible thing. Saul became impatient because God wasn't moving according to his timetable. And so he took matters into his own hands. And for me, this raises the question, another example of where's Hagar when you need her? And uh, you know Genesis chapter 16. Some of you know that God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that the whole earth would be blessed through their offspring. But they were quite old when this promise was made. And they became impatient with God's timing of this thing until one day Sarah had this idea Well, I know, since it's so long in being fulfilled. Why don't you, Abraham, spend some time with my maidservant, Hagar? And he did, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Ishmael. And they took matters into their own hands. And if you know the history of world religions, you will have to agree with me that the birth of Ishmael has brought more havoc and destruction on this earth than perhaps any other. Other single act in human history because they took matters into their own hands we're not going to do things God's way we're going to do things our way because God is slow in coming and I call this the Hagar option you can always exercise your Hagar option if you get tired of waiting on God that's always within your free will within your range of possibilities to exercise your Hagar option but through Scripture, you will see that every time the Hagar option is exercised, calamity results. Bad things happen next when we don't wait on God. If you look at this passage in 1 Samuel, you'll see that Saul, in doing this, actually deprived himself of the blessing that God had in mind for him. In chapter th- or verse 13, the Bible says, You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Listen, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. That it was in the heart of God to establish a dynasty, an everlasting kingdom, in this respect, through Saul. That this was the initial plan of God. This was the blessing that God had in store for him. But because he took matters into his own hands and didn't wait for the fulfillment of the Lord's promise according to the Lord's timing, then he cut himself off from the blessing. He cut himself off from the blessing of God. And the truth is that God wanted to bless Saul. But not only did he want to bless him, but he wanted to bless him according to a certain plan, according to certain conditions, and according to certain timing. And Saul would have none of it. And so he rejected the blessing of God. Listen, believers, it is the Father's heart to bless you. It is the Father's heart to bless you. To bless you beyond belief. It is the Father's heart to bless you. To bless your coming in and your going out. To bless your time of speaking and bless your time of silence. And to bless you in joy and to bless you in sorrow. It is the Father's heart to bless you. And He has a plan of blessing for you. And it is critical at the same time to be sensitive to and wait for the blessing of the Lord to come and not to take matters into your own hands along the way. And say the Lord is slow in coming. I think I'll do it this way. It is the Father's heart to bless you, beloved. And this passage here, I think, illustrates two major enemies of the blessing of God in our lives. I mean, have you noticed that there are things that stand opposed to God's flow of blessing in your life? Has anybody noticed this? Now, if I could tell you two major enemies, would you want to hear it? Say yes, you'll start again. Okay, two major enemies of the blessing of God in our lives, and the first is impatience. Impatience. Saul simply ran out of patience. He just said time's up. Time's up. I'm not going to wait any longer. I see what's happening in front of me. My men are scattering. The Philistines are gathering. I've run out of time. I've run out of patience. But listen to me. Succumbing to impatience is to make a conscious decision to doubt. Succumbing to impatience is to make an intentional conscious decision to doubt. You know, just as everything we believe comes from a conscious decision, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God the Holy Spirit and that they are three in one. I believe this with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe the Bible is true. And I believe the Father wants to bless us. I believe these things through a conscious act of my will and what i have discovered in 40 years of following hard after jesus is that he affirms that belief again and again and again but it begins with a conscious act of the will to decide to believe it now when we succumb to impatience we make a conscious decision not to believe we say god's not coming i'm going to so in by default we are making a decision to doubt and it's as intentional as your decision to believe And you can reverse it by believing again. Impatience is making a conscious decision that God is not coming, that he's not going to keep his promise. Impatience is looking up to heaven and saying, I haven't got all day. Well, guess what? It turns out that God does. It turns out that God does have all day. And I want you just to try to... Imagine yourself in the position of God who has a heart to bless you, but all of the things that He must coordinate, not just for you, but for everybody else He wants to bless, so that the timing of your individual blessing, no matter how small, is critical to everything else that only an infinite God could possibly put together. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That on the same Saturday that you're praying for no rain because you have a party in the backyard, there's a farmer begging for rain on his soybeans. Am I right? And imagine that the timing of the answer, the timing of the blessing, is as important as the blessing itself. And when we become impatient, and when we say, No, I don't want it in that time. We cut ourselves off from the blessing. We step outside of the shower of blessing. I want to tell you something else about waiting that you're really not going to like. And that's that waiting is good for you. Waiting is good for you. The Bible says, Be still and know that I'm God. Do you want to know God? Yes or no? Then be still. And wait. Waiting is actually good for you. Impatience causes us to start waiting for something else. We start devising in our own mind what the answer should now be. We, we revise it. We revise the blessing. Do we not? We settle for less. That's what impatience does. We start doubting the promise, making our own plan. We stop having faith when we become impatient, when we give up on the time. And when we do that, it cuts us off from the flow of God's blessing. So my word to you first in this enemy is is wait. Just wait. The second enemy of the blessings of God in your life is something called rationalization. 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 You just reason it away. Saul simply rationalized away the clear word of God. The word of God was so clear to him. Wait. Samuel will come. He will offer the offerings. And you will be successful. But he rationalized that he's taking too long. He looked at the circumstances. His men were scattering. The Philistines were farming. And so he rationalized something. Well, I'm tired of waiting. I'm giving up on that. So I will just... Do this myself. I will just make this offering myself. How hard can this really be? And so he brought this unauthorized offering to God. And the results were catastrophic. And when he did that, he excluded himself from the blessing God had for him. God wanted to bless him. But he, through impatience and rationalization, removed himself from the place of God's blessing. There is an epidemic of rationalization in the church today. On one hand, there is a whole field of theology devoted to rationalization of why we should not expect God to move in power anymore. There's a whole elaborate field of theology devoted to explaining you through very poor interpretations of Scripture passages why you should not expect God to move among you anymore. That that day is gone and we must just wait for heaven. And that's all rationalization of the clear teaching of Scripture that says God wants to move among His people. That He wants to break out in kingdom power wherever His people will come and acknowledge His lordship. But that's not the worst part of the rationalization in the church. I think what's hurting us the most is the rationalization of sin in the church. The rationalization, we just think it through and we rationalize why we permit the sin in our lives that we do. Now, in fairness to all of us, including myself, I'm sure if there were a way to measure it, we would all find some rationalization in our closets, would we not? But I want you to notice how insidious and dangerous rationalization is. It starts so small. And if left unchecked, it pollutes and diseases practically every dimension of our lives. It starts so small. It started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan came to Eve and said what? Did God really say? I mean, could we just think about this a little bit? He made this whole garden and he made you as his prized creation. Did he really say you couldn't eat from just that one? I mean, does that even really make sense to you, Eve? And she rationalized, did she not? And infected the generations of human race, Adam and Eve, down to our day. It starts so small. And when we rationalize sin in our lives, what we end up doing is we reject the authority of God. Because God is clear in His Word. What is sin and what is not sin? Yes or no? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to read through and see that certain things grieve the heart of God and are outside of His intention for us as His people. They're called sin. And rationalization says, yes, I know, but in my case... It rejects the authority of God. It says, I know that's what you're saying, God. It's clear. But, you know, I reject that authority. Because I'm an exception. And so I rationalize. And when we reject the authority of God in our lives, we remove ourselves from the path of His intended blessing. Why? Because the blessing of God must always be received in conjunction with His authority. We don't want what God wants to put in our hands if we're not surrendered to Him and what we'll do with it. As American consumer Christians, we get this idea, well, I can can get God to bless my hands and I'm a free moral agent to do with it whatever I want. Wrong! The only reason God wants to bless us so is so that He can pour Himself out on the world around us. And so if we reject His authority by rationalizing, we cut ourselves off from the blessing I don't think He's going to entrust us with anything that we're not going to use His way. Does this make sense to anybody? Okay. Rationalization. It's cutting us off from the blessing of God. What do I mean by rationalization of sin? Well, let me give you a few examples. Rationalization says things like, I know that gossip is destructive, but sometimes I just need to vent. When you do, you effectively reject the authority of God and cut yourself off from the fullness of God's blessing. Rationalization says, I know I should make time to connect with the Lord in prayer and His Word every day, but I just kind of keep Him in my thoughts throughout the day. When we do that, when the teaching of Scripture is clear, seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He's near. We effectively cut ourselves off from the fullness of God's blessing. I know what the Bible says about tithing and generosity. But things are really tight right now. And once we get the whatever paid off, then we'll be able to do that. That's rationalization. The teaching of Scripture is clear. When we rationalize, we cut ourselves off from the blessing of God. I know what the Bible says about living together outside of marriage, but my boyfriend and I feel married in the Spirit. Besides, what difference does a piece of paper really make? The Scriptures are clear, beloved. When we reject the clear teaching of Scriptures, we reject the authority of God and cut ourselves off from His blessing. I know that viewing pornography is wrong, but I really just can't seem to help myself besides everyone's doing it. It's rationalization. And when we rationalize sin in our lives, we cut ourselves off from His blessing. I know what the Bible says about homosexuality, but I've felt this way for as long as I can remember. Since I was 12, I have had such a thirst for alcohol. I I actually smoked my first joint when I was 11 years old. That doesn't make it right. When we reject the clear teaching of Scripture, we reject the authority of God and we cut ourselves off from His blessing. I know that the Bible clearly teaches that life begins at conception, but this is an unbelievably bad time for me to be pregnant. No one would ever, ever violate that space in you. No one would empathy would ever not understand what you're saying. But when we make provision for ourselves in any way that is outside of the clear teaching of the Scripture... We reject the authority of God and we cut ourselves off from His blessing. This is a rationalization of sin that is destructive. And at the end of the day, you have every right to make this list of decisions that I just listed and maintain these rationalizations. You have every right to do that. That's called free will. And the Bible says that at whatever point you acknowledge them as sin and confess them to the Lord, that you can find complete, complete, forever forgiveness from them. Gone. As if it had never happened. But it is also true that as we maintain these and other rationalizations for sinful living in our lives, as King Saul did, we purposefully cut ourselves off from the blessing God has for us. one of the terrible things that is happening in the church these days is that in the interest of contemporizing the gospel for today's world we're also compromising certain critical standards of righteousness now the gospel has always been contemporized by that i mean you know made relevant in terms of its 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 delivery system to the people of the day martin luther he wrote 40 different hymns And he would, at times, set them to tunes of then-popular songs that were sung in the pubs. That's contemporizing it. And you can hear it. A mighty fortress is our God. Just put a beer stein in your hand and change the words. A bulwark never. You see two guys leaning up against each other. Failing. Hey! That's not a stretch, is it? That's called contemporizing. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. Contemporizing the gospel today is, is something that's always been done in every generation. I, I, I find interesting people who come to me at times and they say something like, well, I just want that good old-fashioned religion. I just want that good old-time Christianity. And what they're really meaning in every case is, is I want the contemporary version of a couple generations ago because that's what was contemporary for me. You don't want the old-time version of Christianity. You do not want that. Have you read the book of Acts? Because if you did, you'd sell all your possessions and goods and you'd give it to the poor and we'd all move into some commune. And I love you, but I don't love you 24-7, all right? So the gospel is always contemporized, that is put into a form that is accessible, communicable to people. And for that, us today, it means we don't dress up for church anymore like our parents did, right? It means that our music is more intense and substantially louder. That's contemporizing the gospel. That's fine. Those, those changes are good. But what's not fine is compromising the clear standards of Of righteousness in the process. While it's absolutely no problem to use projection on a screen rather than hymnals in a pew, it's absolutely not all right for the church to entertain the idea of performing same sex marriages. One is contemporizing and the other is compromising. And some of you are sitting there, you're making me uncomfortable. Well, welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Gospel of Jesus Christ makes us uncomfortable. And it's made to make us uncomfortable so that we can wake up from our sinful predicament and cling to the cross and come and be filled with the Holy Spirit and let the Word of God dwell in us so that we can start looking like the bride of Christ. That's it. And it is not the church's job to make you feel comfortable the church's job to tell you the truth. Because if, if in collecting a people who call themselves a church, we have to compromise the obvious standards of righteousness from Scripture, we're not building a church. We're just gathering a crowd. Rationalizing these sins, you know, doesn't change the abiding standard. Rationalizing them doesn't change God's position. His position remains the same Bible position. And this is all part of our continuing effort to make God out in our image. And so we take some of these issues of the day, and we look at the Scripture, and we see that they don't match up well, and so we start backwatering it to God and say, we need to see this issue this way. It's 2015, Lord. You need to adapt. I know, on a surface, doesn't that just sound hideous? We're trying to make God subject to us. And when we are rationalized, we're forced to compromise. King Saul did. He rationalized and he compromised. And when we compromise, we actively reject the very blessings of God, the very blessings God prepares for us which are exactly the thing we so desperately need. You know, I wonder what God was planning to do for Saul through Samuel's sacrifice if he had waited, other than sending his line. I wonder what great blessing Saul just completely missed. His whole life went awry after this. You know, I don't think God is punishing us for being impatient or rationalizing. I don't think it's that way at all. Jesus bore the punishment of our sins. You know, you can do any of those things I just talked about and still be a Christian. What? You can... That will not exclude you from the gospel. If you look at me, if you look at God and say that your faith is authentically in Jesus Christ who shed blood for you, you will not be disqualified by behavior. That's the mystery of the gospel. But while you may have your get-out-of-hell-free card, the Bible says two things. One... What you do here is going to make a difference in how you live there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the second thing is simply this, is that when we don't live according to the righteous requirements of God, as He enables us by the power of His Holy Spirit, we cut ourselves off from the blessing. It's not a punishment. We remove ourselves from the place that the Father had intended to bless us. You've got to wait. You've got to wait faithfully for the Lord. You've got to wait. It's all didn't wait. It's all rationalized. Impatience, rationalization are sucking the life out of some of you. Karen and I have long encouraged each other with these simple words, we must keep doing the right thing and let time prove us right. <laughs> oh, hundreds of times we've said that to each other in our moments of despair, decision, there have been so many opportunities, you know, for us to go other places, do other things that would have been easier than this, but we knew what we were called. There have been times been so much pressure, pressure on us from people saying, you know, you got to look at it this way, you got to do it this way, you got to do this, and sometimes it's been difficult, and so we've encouraged each other with these words, we just got to, honey, we just got to keep doing the right thing, and let time prove us right, and I'm not at all saying that we've always done everything perfectly, but we've always done everything and made every decision out of a sense of what the Lord had already told us to do and what He was saying to us then. And in the due course of time, we have seen people who at one point shook the dust off of their sandals as they left us in disgust, come back and say yes. You're no different today than you were 20 years ago. It's the blessing of faithfulness. And I need to tell you that even when time proves you right, we have taken no real pleasure in that, but we've found deep satisfaction in it. It's the power of waiting faithfully for a God. Another way to say it is simply this, may my enemies live long enough to see my success. As we move toward ministry this morning, I want to show you a picture of something, and it's going to be difficult for some of you to see. It's graphic. It's going to convey a message to you that you as an American do not like. It is critical to the conveyance of this message. Here it is. You hate to see this sign when you're driving along. You hate this sign. There's going to be some person up there leaning against a pole telling you what to do. You know, when you see this sign, that very soon you're going to have to give up control. You know, you had all your plans worked out, right? And that somebody else is suddenly going to be in charge of the fulfillment of those plans. You know this. You know, it's unfair to you. I drive this road every day. What business do they have fixing it? Can't stop me. getting at the core of who I am. Well, I need to tell you something. There's power in waiting. There's power in waiting. The Bible says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. There's power in waiting. God waits to release His strength to you now. And release power in your life as you recommit yourself to waiting, living according to His righteous standard as He enables you by His Spirit and waiting for the fulfillment of His promise. The Bible also says, Choose this day whom you shall serve. You know, Karen and I are living an unusually blessed life. We know that. We know that. We don't deserve the life we're living. But though we have worked very hard with our hands over the years, we know that the blessed life we're living is not because of that, but because of God. We must not think that we have created this blessing apart from Him. But this is the same blessing that is available to every believer. I am not special. And I feel like in some ways many people are living on the edge, on a tipping point of God's blessing. And if they will examine themselves for rationalization in their lives and do what it, There's nothing more important than cutting that thing out of your life. There's nothing more important than cutting that thing out of your life. That I just feel like the blessing of God is just at a tipping point. And when you respond to this teaching, when you respond to whatever God's saying, when this teaching what God's saying in your heart, that that will tip in your favor. Father in heaven, we, we come to this time where we just want to respond in our hearts to you. We never really have much of a plan here, Lord. This has always been the time when you've just been so faithful to touch hearts and that we just respond in ways that we see you moving. I thank you for every person here, Lord. I, I thank you for them no matter what their list of sins might be i thank you for them the same i thank you that you make a place like this for people like us and that you give us this grace through your son jesus christ and his shed blood on the cross and that you give us your word to indwell us teach us get hold of our minds to take every thought captive and that you pour out your spirit to engage us in the kingdom reality in the here and now and so father i pray For the release of your Holy Spirit to come and to meet every authentically seeking heart in the name of Jesus and set the prisoners free. There's not a person in here who wants to continue rationalizing. It's just been their only defense. And I pray now in the name of Jesus that you will come. And that by your power and by your spirit, you will set them free. And as our heart, Lord, to commit or recommit ourselves to waiting upon you, knowing that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Come, Holy Spirit, come and move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, church, and just respond in the ways that God puts in your heart.